In this episode, neurology resident Dave Ho interviews Dr. Michelle Kaku and myself, Dr. Vincent Lau. We are neuromuscular and amyloidosis specialists. We talk on the topic of neurological manifestations of amyloidosis. This is part two of two. A reminder that the purpose of this podcast is for education and not for direct medical advice. We hope you enjoy. Today, we're going to be discussing the treatment options for the amyloidosis uh, with our very own doctors, Vincent Lau and Michelle Cocker. Welcome back. Thanks, Dave. So diving in where we left off, I wanted to talk about amyloidosis and specifically AL amyloidosis. Uh, what are the treatment options available for amyloidosis? Yeah, so AL amyloidosis you know, is managed by a hematologist and oncologist. Um, the neurologists themselves would, would not be prescribing any of these medications, but it's good to know a little bit, at least um, get a sense of what they are and what, what's available when you, when you get consulted on these patients. And, um, and we'll talk a little bit about the side effect of one in particular, too, which is, uh, has very obvious neurological side effects. Um, so typically, when a patient has AL amyloidosis, their first line treatment is uh, high-dose chemotherapy. And if they qualify, they will also often have an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, the first chemotherapy agent is usually melphalan, um, and some of the contraindications to getting this treatment is if you have really severe cardiac dysfunction or, or renal dysfunction, that may re- preclude them from, from this treatment. Um, another uh, important medication to, to know is that if a patient is transplant ineligible, then oftentimes they'll get uh, bortezomib. So bortezomib, you'll see if uh, oftentimes in a general neurology clinic or neuromuscular clinic, um, because it's a, it's a proteosome inhibitor, um, and it has a very kind of fairly high rates of neuropathy as a complication. Um, there's actually a term for it, it's called bortezomib induced peripheral neuropathy. And, um, in some studies, you know, the grade one neuropathy can occur up to like 75% of patients who get on it. And then obviously for higher grades, like grade three and four, then up to 30% of patients might have some degree of neuropathy, um, because of the medication. Um uh, is usually given a combination um, called Cybor-D, where it's given with cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone, hence Cybor-D. Um, so that's a, a fairly common um, side effect, unfortunately, to get peripheral neuropathy, and patients oftentimes will have to reduce their dose or even get off of that um, of the uh, of the treatment completely because of the neuropathy. Um, there's a couple kind of more recent ones, again, that you might see in a chart. Um, they're called uh, pomalimumide. It's, it's a new immunomodulating agent that's been used to treat AL. And daratumumab is a monoclonal antibody. Um, it targets CD38. And um, I'll also mention that for the, the latter two, the pomalimumide and the daratumumab, that there's so far in the, the studies, there's no obvious neurological complications, which um, make these drugs also quite attractive. And again, you know, we never prescribe these drugs ourselves. It's just good to get a sense of kind of what the the couple of lines of treatments are. So um, when our hematology colleagues consult us that we have some understanding of kind of what the, what the patient is getting. Cool. So moving on to hereditary and wild type amyloidosis, uh, what are the treatment options for these conditions? Sure. Um, so medications used to treat TTR amyloidosis, you can kind of think about them into two categories. One is TTR silencers that suppress TTR synthesis, so that this includes small interfering RNAs, or which is patisserin, 
and um, the antisense oligonucleotide, which is inotersin. And then the other sort of bucket or other category is TTR stabilizers. And these stabilize TTR uh, and prevent the TTR tetramer from misfolding. So the, the two in this category are deflunosol um, as well as tefamidus. Um, just, you know, going into each one of them. So uh, deflunosol, um, relatively benign drug. It's a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory NSAID. Um, that said, it has all the, you know, side effects of any other NSAID. So it's used in, in caution in patients with renal disease, and it can have other um, GI side effects. Um, amongst the um, silencers, uh, most common side effects for um, inotersin in the trials were uh, thrombocytopenia and glomerulonephritis. So all patients um, actually need monitoring for thrombocytopenia and, um, and renal dysfunction while they're on that drug. Um, most common side effects for patisserin, I would say, are probably related to infusion reactions. Um, I'm not going to go into to this too much because this is not commercially available, but there was also a study um, earlier this year looking at CRISPR technology um, in five mm -hmm. patients um, that, that looks promising, but, you know, we, we don't have much um, large-scale data on that yet. Moving on, what is the role of the neurologist when it comes to managing amyloidosis, especially at a multidisciplinary amyloidosis center? That's a great question. And um, I think I'll answer it uh, by talking a little bit about kind of what's the role of neurologists in general for um, patients with systemic disorders. So, you know, oftentimes in, in neurology, we'll get consulted uh, from a sarcoidosis expert asking about um, neurological manifestation of sarcoid or, or various rheumatological disorders. So, you know, how do you approach that? Um, I think one framework that makes it a little bit easier is I think the first question I, I try to answer when I see these patients, it's um, what are the neurological disorders that this patient has? So, you know, independent of the systemic disorder. So I, you know, our first job is just to find out, do you think that this patient clinically has carpal tunnel syndrome? Do they have polyneuropathy? Do they have dysautonomia? And, you know, we figure those things out from as usual, like in any other patient encounter, a publish of history of exam of um, neurophysiological data or other other tests. So that's step one. I, you know, in my assessment, in my notes, I oftentimes just start off by saying that I think this patient has left CTS and also um, polyneuropathy. And then the second step and what your consultants want to know is, are these manifestations because of this underlying disorder, whether that's amyloidosis or sarcoidosis or, or whatever? Um, and that question is a little trickier. Um, a lot of the things that we do in these situations is to rule out and to rule in. So at the amyloidosis center, when we see somebody who has polyneuropathy and even actually basically with, with any patient, we'll do a very full um, polyneuropathy screen, just a, a quick lab screen for um, competing causes like vitamin B12 deficiency, um, diabetes, um, thyroid dysfunction, kind of your classic uh, neuropathy screen because you know, if somebody has very, very um, severe diabetes and that makes you question whether or not this neuropathy is truly related to the amyloidosis or, or the underlying systemic disorder. Um, and then in terms of ruling in, then sometimes there are um, things that you could do to like definitively say that this carpal tunnel is related to AL. For example, if you do do that um, 
carpal tunnel surgery and you get flexor rectum and you're able to confirm that there is Congo red birefringence, then you can tell that definitively that this is the neurological manifestation of the underlying disease. Um, but I would say that the second question is a little more tricky and there is more subjectivity to it. And, um, and that's why it's nice to work in a, a multidisciplinary center because then you can discuss and debate a little bit about what you think the likelihood is that um, that a specific finding of a specific neurological diagnosis is related to amyloidosis or visceral or something else. To kind of um, peer in through the window into a multidisciplinary amyloidosis center, what, what kind of takes place either on the day-to-day -day or with each patient encounter, especially at BMC? Yeah, sure. So um, at, at um, Boston University, patients travel to our center um, from really, I would say all over the country, but we've had patients from all over the world actually come to the center, which is uh, quite exciting. And over the, the course of two days, uh, we obtain um, blood work, um, different types of testing, which I can go into. Uh, and, and the patients are evaluated by multiple specialties, commonly um, hematology, uh, neurology, cardiology, uh, pulmonary, uh, renal, GI, and really any other specialties uh, that this patient might need uh, specifically. Um, they're also evaluated by our amyloidosis uh, NPs as well. Um, and then during their evaluation, they will uh, get things like orthostatic vitals to assess for autonomic dysfunction, uh, I think depending on what type is suspected, they may have a bone marrow biopsy or fat pad biopsy. Um, they may get genetic testing. Um, as Vincent said, labs to assess for, you know, major risk factors of neuropathy to see if there may be competing causes. And we usually do this over the course of two days, which is usually a Monday and a Tuesday. And then um, the all of the providers uh, convene as a group on Friday, uh, and we uh, come up with a comprehensive plan, which is then relayed both to the patient, but then also um, the referring provider and anyone else that's taking care of the patient locally. Thank you for that. Um, it's a pleasure interviewing you both. So uh, thank you all listeners for uh, joining us for today. Uh, this has been Neurology Clinical Pearls. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.